Welcome back to the Task Talks podcast, a podcast for talk about all the goings on in the world of school psychology and other random musings. As always, I am your host. We have a very special episode today, and I am joined by two amazing and brilliant people. Dr. Nancy Raza, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. I saw Brooke get excited because he thought I was going to introduce him first because I always- I saw that too. I saw the big old smile on his face. <laughs> I was I, I was- I was actually looking for the other brilliant person. Oh, bro. <laughs> I was like, who, who is joining Nancy? <laughs> because that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> How have you guys been doing? Anything going on in your lives? Anything crazy? Or subdued. That'd be good too, right? <laughs> never, never subdued. It's always super interesting and a lot of things going on all the time. <laughs> you know, and, uh, Brooke and I are university trainers, so the fun never quite stops, not even during the summer. Is, so is this a time of the I'll, year? We're talking I'll about keep, generally I'll just... Keep, I'll keep some stories to myself. <laughs> right? So We are live, so we don't want to share too much about our students. <laughs> so we'll, we'll say generally the first half of the year. As trainers, what do you guys... Are you Do you guys prep material for the fall, or is that kind of already taken care of at this point? What are you kind of planning on for the rest of the year? I know that wasn't on the show notes, but I'm just... Now you brought it up, so I'm just out of curiosity. Well, the courses that I teach in our program are the practicum and the internship. And so there's always something that has to change, right? Or Mm -hmm. our assessment courses. Um, And so I feel like every time uh, we we teach a new, uh, uh, the same course, right? It's kind of a new course because you're adding something different or um, you're changing it somewhat. You know, during, during COVID, we learned a lot about virtual stuff. Not that I want our program to go online by any means, but just how to utilize technology in a meaningful way to students, right? And so trying to incorporate that um, is always helpful. So I feel like for us, our courses are always changing. And, and what one student told me that, you know, uh, graduated maybe eight years ago when I first uh, had my first round of graduates was like, and we know it's only going to get better after this, right? Because you're only going to improve it. And here we are that that many years later. And sure enough, we have, you know, we have improved the program. So I, I mean, Chris, it's interesting, you know, we often see people asking about what a school psychologist does. And the question, you know, the answer is it depends, it, you know, yeah. it depends on the district and it depends on part, you know, the state and part of the state that you live in. Um, and I think the same is true for, for universities as well. I mean, some faculty members have uh, teach both undergraduate and graduate students. Some are, you know, teach only graduate students and they have two courses in the fall and two courses in the spring while there's some faculty uh, who have, you know, four courses each semester. So I think it varies quite a bit. Um, I'm a little bit different because I'm kind of uh, administrative and clinical. Um, so I don't have any um, uh, instructor of record responsibilities at this time. And so everything that I do is out in the field with our students or meeting with our students and helping them uh, uh, remediate problems or helping them uh, find their voice to ask their supervisors questions. Um, and so that's kind of my role. It's a little bit different than a traditional um, uh, lecturer or, or instructor. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Nancy, you said you teach assessment, correct? I do. So whenever a new assessment comes out, do you have to like dr- kill and drill the manual to be like, all right, what's what's in the WISC five, right? What do Pretty I much to- and yeah. beg the publisher to give me some PowerPoints, you yeah. know, and um, to be able to incorporate them into into our, our courses. Absolutely. 
have to relearn, you know, everything or, or learn all the, all the new instruments to come out because you do want to stay current in, in training students. Absolutely. Well, you know, I had to do, we had to do projects on assessments and we had to present them to the class. I think it was a kind of a cheat way of like us learning the assessments on our own and then teaching everybody else about it. And one assessment I had to learn was the Woodcock Munoz learning survey, <laughs> which is why Nancy is here, right? Bilingual assessment. Okay. <laughs> Did I get that right? Is that, a, is that a, is it's that actually a, the, la- the Woodcock Munoz language survey. Damn it. Close, so close. Clearly, I don't. It use was that. learning language, eh? It's all together. So, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a language in. survey, and, and we're on the third, the third edition already. Well, bilingual bilingual assessment is kind of a odd subject for a lot of people because a lot of us don't know how to do it, right? I'm not very practiced in it. There's people in my district that are. Every time we have a bilingual assessment that comes up, it's typically Spanish they will come in and do it. So I kind of have a hands-off thing. Brooke, I'm assuming it's kind of the same thing with you. You typically don't necessarily mess with them, correct? I am a monolingual dude and um, I, nope, I don't. I And so I'm really looking forward to this episode to get some of the, uh, you know, some of the, the best practices, but also, I mean, we always, we, we seem to think that when we're talking about bilingual assessment, we're always talking about Spanish and English. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. And I think there's many places in our country and even in our state where we may have large refugee populations, um, or we may have, um, a, a high population of, uh, a, another particular um, ethnicity. And so that that's something that as school psychologists, we need to be able to, uh, to face and to address from a bilingual um, um, assessment paradigm. Yeah. You know, and I, and I really wish we wouldn't call it bilingual assessment. Right. I mean, I know that's the standard way, but I, I really wish we would call it the assessment of culturally okay. and linguistically diverse students, right? And okay. that incorporates all students, right? not just right. those of certain ethnicities or, you know, certain races or whatever it is, right? And so, because it it's so much more than just language. And we started having this discussion within our board, right, about um, this very topic, because even Brooke, as he's mentioned, okay, I'm a monolingual English speaker, right? Even Brooke as a monolingual English speaker um, can be very valuable to our culturally and linguistically diverse population if he has some training and understanding of language, language acquisition, you know, all these different areas that really should always be incorporated into an assessment. Rather your name be, you know, your last name be Roberts or Rasso. It doesn't matter, right? We should be looking at all aspects of kids um, anytime we're doing an assessment, because I feel like when we label, you know, I mean, uh, for all we know, Brooke Roberts could be bilingual, right? But we don't make that assumption and just looking at him. And so I really wish, um, we would take the stance of, you know, inquiring about kids' cultural and linguistic background, no matter what their last name is, or no matter what the color of their skin is, because we have no idea, you know, what what they could be experiencing or what they have experienced. So can we can we pull away? The, and I like I like the CLD language, the the culturally and linguistically diverse. But for today, can we pull? out the culturally part and focus on the language diversity or as English language learners, or what's the, what's the viewpoint there? Well, and and 
we're already mistaken, Brooke, by calling us English language learners in the state of Texas, because now we're English. Well, we we became English learners and it just changed again to buy. I don't even remember what it is. I think it's bilingual or English emergent learner. I don't even remember, honestly, at, at this moment in time. I know I know it, but I don't know it right at this moment. But you really can't separate language from culture. At least I don't think you can, especially in the type of assessment that we're doing, because because of their culture and the things that they've gone through, they may be at a certain level with their language or not. You know what I mean? And I say that because we, there we go. Thank you. Emerging English learners. I knew it was emerging. I just didn't remember the rest. Um, but, you know, we, we really can't pull away from it. And, and I'm going to quote one of, uh, as you all know, Dr. Jorge Gonzalez from University of Houston actually comes down to the Valley or has in the past to do research on language um, with our little ones, um, I want to say preschoolers in Brownsville, you know, he was really studying language and a lot of the, the kids in his study um, were nor Spanish nor English, right? But, but a lot of them were coming from impoverished backgrounds, right? So that's part of their culture and very much influencing why their language isn't there, you know, and he'd use language surveys and things like that to determine how, how are these kids growing up you know, what, what kind of language needs do they have? And really they had a lot of language needs because again, of their backgrounds and things like that and their cultural needs that were affecting their language. So I have a hard time understanding how we can tease that apart or talk about them. I mean, we can talk about them separately, sure. But with the understanding that culture, of course, um, impacts language right, and vice versa. Well, so, okay. So from a practitioner's where do we even start? Right. Like how do, so I'm giving an assessment, like where is there foundational understanding we need to have with assessing or just, do we need to just have a basic understanding of things first? Is that kind of, does that question kind of make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I think again, I mean, we can't just assume that because, you know, certain last names are color of a skin, you, okay, well, let's go ahead and ask the bilingual question, right? First of all, we got to look at records. Um, all children are given, uh, or all parents have to fill out a home language survey, right? A home language survey is the survey that all parents get when they're enrolling the kid for the very first time in a school district um, that's going to ask, what is the language spoken at home, right? What language, do, and even if you speak English, you've, you're given this language survey, right? And um, what language do you speak at home? Is there, what language does the child speak at home? Is there a different kind of language that's spoken? And that upon enrolling a child is looked at to determine, okay, is this child going to need some, some sort of bilingual education or do we have to assess, you know, because most school districts have this whole assessment department that takes care of that, that takes care of determining labels for kids, whether they're gonna get labeled as bilingual and things like that. But the interesting fact that um, I learned as a graduate student from, from Dr. Hector Ochoa was that many times, you know, when we look at those forms, it will, they'll, the questions will be answered in Spanish and it'll say Ingles, Ingles, right? What language is spoken at home? Ingles. Uh, what, other, what other language is the child exposed to? Ingles, right? So right. when a school district gets Ingles, Ingles, what do they treat it as? Oh, English, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, uh, no, <laughs> yeah. we've got to do some questioning here because is it really English? right? If they're answering in Spanish, obviously, you know that there's some Spanish in the background, but there's so, so many misconceptions about, 
bilingual education and things like that, that that's why those kinds of things happen. Or I can also tell you, I mean, we live in this great state of Texas, right? Where there's been so many controversies over language, many people who've lived in this state, you know, for a long, long time and spoke Spanish perhaps didn't teach their kids how to speak Spanish because when they were in school, they were reprimanded for using the language, right? So you have that whole generation where they didn't teach their kids how to speak Spanish because of that type of trauma that they experienced. They couldn't speak it. They shouldn't speak it in school. And so, you know, you have that generation that didn't teach it. And that language was then you know, not lost, but maybe it came back with the grandchildren or something because there was a different way of looking at language um, and, you know, appreciating it maybe a little bit more. So, so you're saying, so we start with that home language survey. We're given a referral. Um, there's a suspicion that there's some sort of a learning problem. And, and so your, your tip is we start with our, uh, with, with our home language survey. Right. And so go ahead. Sorry. Well, and so and so there's a problem, though, in that we may not necessarily be actually looking. We not when we read or uh, review the home language survey, we may not actually have true uh, a true response. Right. Okay. And so one of the things that, you know, that I've learned, obviously, being Hispanic and growing up in the Hispanic community, um, but now in my professional position, I've learned that, you know, because sometimes uh, I'm not Hispanic enough because I, it's, it's this whole nother conversation that we should have at a later time. But those people in the audience that are Hispanic are going to know exactly what I mean. Or, you know, you're not white enough or you're not black enough or whatever it is. Right. right. Um, the, the dealing with many different cultures, it's always about relationship. It's always about taking the time to build that rapport with the families so that they are able to tell you their story, hmm. right? They are, they are able to tell you what's going on in their background rather than just assuming that, you know, the paper trail is there. Let's just read the paper trail. And we're not going to ask questions to the family, you know, things like that. So starting with, you know, building that rapport with the families of kids who were assessing is really important. And then letting them know that the information we're trying to obtain for them is really so that we understand their child in the greater context. And so that we can make some determinations as to what is really going on. When you when you talked about building that relationship with the parents this year, especially, I have gotten a lot of diverse linguistic speakers that have come in and they actually requested testing. So before we even get consent or anything like that, I usually sit down with them with an interpreter so that way we, we can have a conversation. And through that conversation, I understand and the parents understand this may not actually be what they thought it was. So right. and that's been a big thing. I like. I'm trying, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but there's been multiple times and it hasn't always been Spanish. I had an Arabic one, one time, mm -hmm. which she had a completely different understanding of what we could provide without testing. I was like, we have a social worker on campus. We have, I'm here for consultation. We have a counselor. And she assumed the only way to get help was to go straight, straight through special education because she had heard mm -hmm. that at one time, but it was only having a hour and a half long conversation with an interpreter that she's like, oh, that's, that's actually not what I want. But now that instead of me just going straight to testing and saying home consent, doing it that way, we actually just sat down and had, I mean, it's a long conversation, but it's part of the job too, right? Like we don't just test, like we have, this is 
part of building that community in our school and building trust with our parents is having this conversation. And at the end of it, she was like, thank you. Like, I didn't know what special education was. I didn't know what the testing was really for. I just knew, knew my kid needed help. And I knew, and I asked, right. But it was just through, like I said, building that relationship, having that conversation that helped get to that point. Which, you know, going back to the training aspect, when we train school psychologists, our board requires for them to have like some um, educational leadership types of courses, right? So they can understand school systems and things like that. And one of the courses that our students take is, um, in fact, letting them know about all the different types of programs that are involved in schools, like title, you know, um, Title One and and bilingual, and you know, all the different programs, so they can be aware. Okay, it's not just special ed. We're not the save all right? Yeah. That we're going to, you come to us, we're like the Statue of Liberty. We take everyone and we're going to help you. No, it, it's not that way, right? We really are the most restrictive kind of programming um, that shouldn't be just utilized for everyone. And, and what I see happening a lot of the times is if there is not the best bilingual program or bilingual services on a campus, then they'll often resort to special ed as okay, this is it, right? My kid's not doing well. And so we, we want those services, not realizing, like you just said, Chris, what it entails. And then when you start explaining, oh, this is for students with disabilities, they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, but I, I did, um, Dr. Ochoa and I did a presentation at NASP some time, some years ago. And, you know, the first question we asked is how many of you in the room, and we had a, about, you know, more than 100 people in the room, how, how many of you think limited English proficiency, that was the term back then, right, um, is a disability, and at least half of the people raised up their hand, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, okay, I get it, it could be a disability, right, if you, do, if you can't understand the language, you know, right. a, a guess, right, a practical kind of disability, but under IDEA, it is not a disability. In fact, it's part of the exclusionary clause, which is something else that we need to be educated on, right? That we say that it's not because of their language, that they are, you know, testing a certain way. And that goes back to Diana versus the Board of Education, right? If we start looking at law, that that's where that goes back to, or Lau versus Nichols, right? All those cases that determined that, you know, students were getting tested and labeled ID um, because they were linguistically different. Right. Do you, do you think that was because you're pulling a national group of school psychologists instead Possibly. of like a, a Texas? I don't know if that would happen. Right. Like not, not saying TAS is like the, we're the best, we are the best state, but if you ask that at like a TAS conference, I don't know if you get the same response. Correct. We Correct. see that. I, a lot I do more. agree because I know, you know, we've we've had Dr. Sam Ortiz over for many task conventions and, you know, he's come down to the valley a whole lot. And he's like, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's different here in the valley where the majority of people speak Spanish and it's great. You all understand where we're coming from. But he's like, when I'm in other places, they don't understand um, the kids that we're dealing with, you know, and it is very important for them to have the understanding, even though you're not bilingual. Right. And that's that's one of the points that I really want to hone in on today is that it's so much more than the practitioner being bilingual. I mean, Chris, you just gave an example of working with an interpreter. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, that leads to making sure the interpreters trained and they're you know telling you the right thing. And, you know, those kinds of things. And, and, and just my experiences with my students being all over the country in different places, you know, here in the Valley, we really don't use interpreters because everyone assumes that everyone else is bilingual, 
But in mo in other places across the state, and again, uh, you know, in other places in the country where my interns have been, it's really nice to have interpreters, even when you speak the language, because then you can be the school psychologist in the yard. You yeah. don't have to be school psychologist slash interpreter slash everything else, right? So it's it's really interesting to hear those different dynamics, right? But there is um, there is there should be involvement with the the interpreters and the translating and you know, all of that to make sure that they're doing what they need to do in relaying the message um, to the families. And I think another hurdle with interpreters that at least not Spanish interpreters is a lot of times if we, if I need an interpreter that speaks Spanish, they're on campus. So they're, they understand education. They're already working the world. For instance, the interpreter I had for the Arabic language, she, she was just an interpreter. So I had to teach her what Absolutely. I was saying first. And then she would try to think of the interpretation to give to the parent and then ask me like, was that, I said it this way, is that the correct way to say it? So it was like double teaching, right? Absolutely. So. <laughs> and that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, um, you know, if, if we're going to get a, an interpreter for a language that we don't commonly have from a hospital or a court system, or, you know, because those places have to have interpreters, um, we're going to have to train them in the special ed process and confidentiality and, you know, and all these things that you and I probably had a graduate course in, right? Yeah. To train us on all of that. We have to do like the quick and dirty version of this so that they understand um, the process, right? Uh, of what we do and, and what their role is as the interpreter. One of the things that I was thinking and, and Nancy kind of hit on it is I find that a lot uh, that that we're skipping a really key piece of information a lot of times, not intentionally, but our students or maybe um, some practitioners are, because of the high testing and assessment loads for special education, we tend to jump over those record reviews and those, those, those interviews and those observations. And then the, the time building that rapport with, uh, with the family. And so, you know, one of the things that Nancy, I think you just brought up is that we need to be asking these families, what was, what was it like, you know, for you to grow up in this family or for you to parent this family related to education? Um, what, what is it that, you know, how long have you been in this country? Um, and there's so many things that we can ask about that helps to establish that rapport, but also helps us to kind of put together some pieces in, in this puzzle. And I think that's that's exactly why we need to continue to promote our NAS practice model that school psychologists, I mean, this we're using our psychological training when we use those skills. Absolutely. There are we have some wonderful colleagues who were trained differently than us in different educational programs, but they weren't trained as as school psychologists. And I think that that's a big piece that's missing. And it's something that we bring to the table that un that can't really be brought to the table by any other professional. I agree. And while we're building that rapport and spending time with our families, we're also being school psychologists and using our clinical judgment to make some determinations, just like, you know, um, Chris in his conversation with the parent that he's talking about and just laying some information out there on how this works. The parent said, yeah, no, that's not what I want, or that's not how I understood it. And you would think that uh, along the line, somebody, you know, they, they might've uh, run into a counselor or an administrator or even a teacher 
who should have been able to explain the process, right? How it ended up having to get to the school psychologist to have this conversation is just unfortunate. And I would guess that it was like, okay, quick, quick, assess, assess. Let's, let's get you to the school psychologist rather than taking the time. And I get it. We are, we are, you know, there's shortages all over the place. But like you said, Brooke, we're missing the boat here. And not only that, not only are we missing the boat, we're misidentifying kids, you know, and that's always my concern with us. We're, we're identifying kids as having a disability, which is a permanent label that really don't need it, right? Or really don't have it. And so then how do we explain that? You know, and then it gets very controversial because if a kid's already had this label and then in high school, we're trying to take it away, you know, it's very confusing to a parent. Right, and they've relied on the services up until that point now and things. So what should we be, let's say that's the initial thing, right? What should we be doing in the beginning? So again, assess, you know, talk about the, the language, talk about the home language survey. If they did put English, English, right? English, English, but written in Spanish. Um, what are their, what are their thoughts about it? Like what kind of, what do they want for their child? You know, what are they thinking the services are the bilingual services? Um, you know, if the district hasn't, but some districts don't have them, you know, let's be honest with that, like, or don't have the best, you know, so it does get a little bit complicated in that aspect, but just having a conversation with the parent, um, just like you did, Chris, and saying, okay, well, what do you think this is about? You know, what are you hoping to get for your child? Um, You know, what are you hoping to get out of it? Right. And then really looking at their history, Um, has the student been in school anywhere else, right? In, in any country or, because again, one of the things that I spend talking to my students about in our bilingual multicultural assessment class is, um, schools in other places are not the same, you know, like here we're, we're in Texas, we have Mexico south of us, right? In Mexico, school is not compulsory, right? In Mexico, they have a national system. So unlike here, that every state is responsible for their own type of curriculum and everything like that, in Mexico, it's a national system. So you're going to get a national type of report card, right? That if they are coming from Juarez, which is right across from El Paso, which is a different state than down here in Reynosa, which is Hidalgo, the Hidalgo crossing down here in the valley, um, you know, Reynosa, Tamaulipas, which is the state it's still going to be the same type of curriculum because it's a national type of report card, national type of curriculum. So just knowing those little intricacies of, okay, yes, I went to school in Mexico. All right. Well, what was that like? Did they have special services? Did they have, you know, it doesn't have to be Mexico. We have people from South America. We have people from all over the place. Right. And trying to understand um, what kind of schooling this child had if they were getting school elsewhere you know, receiving schooling elsewhere or in school elsewhere. I think those are important conversations to also dive into um, and trying to understand, you know, because again, many times, and it, it happens to our neighboring country, if kids were having severe disabilities, guess what? Guess where they are? At home yeah. <laughs> or, you know, in, in some kind of center or things like that. They're not at school like we have them here in the United States. So just understanding those intricacies and really letting the family know, like, I'm interested in what you have to say. That's the only way we're going to get the information. Otherwise they're not going to give it to us. And in my specific example, it wasn't necessarily academic. It was behavior-based. And so just having a conversation, that's, so let's back up a little bit. So when I talked to the parent, 
they fill out all the paperwork with the interpreter um, because it was all in English and we, we weren't able to transpose it in Arabic. Um, so I asked the parent just, so what are your concerns, right? She was just talking and yada, yada. And she, the one sentence she said that stuck with me was like, and it all started when the rest of our family came over to live with us from Iraq. And I was like, all right, let's hold up right there. So it was a student who had been by himself for six years. All the kids came over, the rest of the siblings and rest of the family. And as she said, as soon as that happened, he started acting out, you know, and I'm like, all right, so let's, let's deconstruct this. Let's talk about it a little bit. And then as I explained it to her and kind of let her know what we actually do in special education and, you know, the services we can provide instead of going to this, you know, some least restrictive stuff. Um, that's when it kind of came out like, oh, that's not actually what I want, but all the other stuff you said was exactly what I wanted. So mm-hmm like I said, just having the conversation and just getting into the nitty gritty of things, but that that's actually kind of leading into my next question. So behavior, let's not talk about academic assessment. What about behavior assessment of bilingual students who maybe have a hard time understanding, you know, what's going on in the classroom, for instance. Right. So I had, I actually had a case um, when I first started um, in school psychology as, as a licensed practitioner, you know, that um, they, they were trying to assess the child for autism. And very interesting case. I think he was a first grader. Expressively, he expressed himself better in English, but receptively, he got it better in Spanish. His numbers were a little bit higher in Spanish, right? So what does that tell us? That in a regular classroom, if he speaks English well, and you know he expressively is doing better in English, he's going to sound like he knows what's going on. But receptively, he's not getting it all because receptively he was higher in Spanish. Okay. So I'm trying to like set up what, what the situation here is. And so referrals for autism, this kid is, is weird, you know, AKA weird, which of course I don't appreciate, but anyway, that, that was was the the wording conversation. Yeah. Those are the conversations from the teachers. This kid is weird. He doesn't understand. He, he also had a diagnosis of ADHD because he was very hyperactive. So the psychiatrist, um, was treating him for the ADHD, but you know, he's got autism. And so we did the ADOS and for the ADOS, you can tell in, in his understanding of what we were trying to do. And of course we're not testing language in the ADOS, but again, you see some of the cultural kinds of things coming across and it wasn't autism. It was just some of his cultural upbringing, you know, cultural requests. So for example, uh, and again, not to criticize the ADOS, right. But the ADOS had some presses, I think they're still there, where you have to request the snack, right? You yeah. give them the snack and you have to request the snack. Well, I don't know about your upbringing, but in my upbringing, we don't request food from anybody, right? right? And when we go to a home, we could be starving. <laughs> We're not going to request or accept food from anyone, right? Yes, so I'll just ex- die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, no, even if it's your aunt, your tia, your tia, whoever, right? It's like, nope, you're just going to say, I'm good. Thank you very much. And, you know, and so that kind of, of press, you know, it's like, no, he's clearly, clearly has autism because he's not asking. <laughs> I was yeah. like, okay, let's, let's kind of have some questions from mom. Like, how do you, you know, how would you do this at home? And they're like, no, we teach our kids never, you know what I mean? Yeah. Some of those kinds of cultural things that that are happening. And also, again, taking into consideration what the kid's language was, because we had to figure out, okay, what language are we doing it in? Are we doing the ADOS in? And of course, um, we did it in English with the understanding that he, he might have some, some issues. So we might have to repeat some things when allowed and things like that, right? Because mm-hmm. there is 
I don't know, again, I haven't given the ADOS in a while. So I know at, at that point there was a translation into Spanish, but I don't remember um, what the validity or reliability on that was. What you're saying is the, the first three parts of right evaluation, riot, right? Record review, interview, right. observation. Absolutely. Those things are the most important parts, right? Before we can get to the testing. There's a lot of things we need to weed out or understand about an individual before we get to, all right, let's do a cognitive and academic assessment, right? Just having these conversations, like you said, he's not going to ask for anything because he's been taught to not ask right. for things, right? It's like it's like the conversations that we've had here in recent years regarding, you know, tra- being trauma-informed, okay. right? That our mentality should be that everyone has some type of trauma and really trying to figure out how has that trauma impacted you know, their learning, their environment, you know, those kinds of situations. It, it, it's kind of along those same lines, right? Trying to spend that time on the RIO of Riot, right? And, and really gaining that background information because it's not just about the numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, we can test a kid who is a bilingual kid uh, on a test and we can say, oh yeah, that score is there. You know, they, they, they follow directions, they did well, that score was there. You know, some kids are not going to tell you that they don't know. They're going to take a guess. They're going to point left and right, you know, and, yeah. and so, yeah, is that score um, a, a good score? Well, technically it is, but is it really valid? Is it really measuring what it's supposed to measure, right? And that, that's, that becomes the question. Right. And it's also, you know, with, with the way we're trained as school psychologists on assessment, it, it's very, yes, they're all individualized assessments. I get it, right? But it's all still very scripted. Okay, you're going to do the IQ and you're going to do the achievement right. and you're going to do this and you're going to do that, right? But when you're when you have cases with with these types of kids, it's not so scripted anymore. You have to think outside the box. You know, you might have to go back to the family and say, okay, I noticed this, or you know, let's try to figure out again because that's what we do. Try to explain things, right? Um, where is this coming from, or what are some of these behaviors, or you know, on the behavioral aspect. Um, what are some of these things that we're seeing? Because the questions may not even be interpreted in the same way. Brooke, did you have any other question? Any question at this point? Okay, so Brooke's sitting down like he's just way too pensive. It's kind yeah. of scary. <laughs> I've never seen really... him this quiet. <laughs> it's the new me. Well, I've known you for a long time, so. <laughs> no, you keep uh, keep going. I uh, no, I'm just. This is seriously something that um, is not in, in my wheelhouse, and I need it's it's clearly indicating to me it's an area that I need. I mean, I've how many times have I checked out the book um, from Doctor, you know, that Doctor Ochoa wrote, you know, assessing culturally, culturally and linguistically, linguistically diverse, diverse students. students. How many times have I checked it out from the library and? you know, with the intentions to, to read it and to uh, move into a, uh, a, a better direction for myself and, and for the children that I work with. And, and then, you know, 30 days later, it's time to return the book. So, um, so no, this is definitely an area that I feel like I've got to, to get better in. You know, and that book, interestingly, that book is so outdated already because it's a 2005 um, yeah. Interestingly, it's, it's Dr. Robert Rhodes, who is uh, the provost at Abilene Christian, right? Uh, Dr. Ochoa, who is the provost in San Diego, and then Dr. Ortiz, who is still doing bilingual training, um, you know, uh, up in New York. And so, I mean, he's housed out of New York, I think. So, you know, it's like we're trying to get these, these uh, gentlemen to come together to update this book. Trust me, I've been 
been using the book for 10 years um, at UTRGV training. So I keep telling them, okay, this is my go-to book, but it's really getting outdated. I have to supplement a lot of stuff. So I need y'all to update it because it really is very unique. Um, and, and the aspects that it takes, you know, to, to help understand school psychologists and any type of practitioner um, working with linguistically and, and culturally diverse kids on what areas should we look at. And it actually, Brooke, next time you check it out, um, it actually has in chapter seven, interviewing techniques, right? about all these things that we're talking about that you're able to, I don't know if you have to purchase the book, you're able to copy and utilize as an interview, like similar to what we would use as the Basque SDH, right? Um, in fact, when I, when I train my students, I'll say, you know, you can use the Basque, but supplement this with the Basque because the Basque does not have all this language and culture stuff that we really should be asking. So right, I know so. Chris is trying to jump in here, but while you're on the topic of resources, would you go ahead and share with the listeners any other uh, resources that may be uh, maybe a little bit more up to date that you would recommend that we add to our, our toolbox? You know what? And unfortunately, there's not a lot. Okay, cool. You know, that's why I, I, I'm a bug. I just emailed. I mean, I just texted Dr. Ochoa this weekend, like, okay, Hector, I really <laughs> need this to happen. Like I even volunteered myself. I will write it. I will, you know, update figures. I, give me just an acknowledgement or something. I mean, I'll, I'll do what I need to, to get this updated because I know it's greatly needed. I also, um, I do rely on somewhat, but it's not a book, right? I rely on, um, there's a website. I think it's bilingual. Let me look at it real quick. Bilingualassessment.org that is out of California. Uh, Dr. Pedro Olvera um, out of California. So I do also use that. Um, he's got a different, a different type of model. It is. It's bilingualassessment.org. Um, Dr. Pedro Olvera um, utilizes that and his team. And that's also a resource that I that I share with my students to be able to, you know, obviously not, not just have one way of thinking, but look at things differently. They have different statements for assessments, they have different models. Um, you know, and the model has changed a little bit from that book that that Brooke is talking about, you know, at, in that book, it's the model is the Mombi, the assessment was the Mombi. And of course, now, with um, all the work that Flanagan and Ortiz have done on, you know, bilingual assessment, the model is a little different in, in the cross battery book. But nonetheless, you know, you need different types of resources. Um, and unfortunately, there aren't too many. And to put in perspective, in 2005, I was learning how to drive. Um, <laughs> uh, so, okay, so we've been talking a lot about monolingual people understanding diverse linguistic individuals. What are some of those pitfalls for those who are actually doing the assessment of bilingual individuals? Right? And so, you know, it, really interesting that you brought that up, Chris. I was at um, a bilingual group with NASP and I haven't been to NASP in a couple of years, so I'm not sure the exact name, like a bilingual interest group or something. Right. And we had some really interesting conversations with supervisors um, because supervisors were like, yeah, no, I, I can't supervise a student if they're bilingual, you know, and want to do this bilingual assessment stuff again, because I'm not bilingual. And I, of course I had to chime in and say, you don't have to be bilingual to supervise a bilingual student you know, doing bilingual assessment or doing, you know, this, this uh, taking into consideration language and culture and all these kinds of things, you just have to know about it. Right. And they were like, explain that to me. And I said, okay, so 
we can have somebody, and I'll use myself as a perfect example, right? So as not to pick on anyone else, but prior to me being a school psychologist or me being in graduate school, you know, I, I was born bilingual, right? I mean, some would even say I was bilingual in the womb because I talk so much. But anyway, um, bilingual, born bilingual, right? My parents spoke Spanish. I learned the English from school and I, you know, learned both. I, I don't remember. I think maybe I was in a bilingual program uh, when I was very, very young, but quickly was immersed in all English, right? I thought when I started going to grad school that, you know, if you, if you have a test in, in span, I mean, in English and you don't have it in Spanish, we'll just translate it. What's the big deal? Well, then I met my stats professor and he was like, no, you can't (laughs) do that. You know, it changes the loading of the questions and this or that, and it hasn't been standardized. And I was like, oh, I get it now. Right. As a trained, I, I understood now. Right. But other than, you know, I, if I didn't have that training, I would have thought, yeah, it's okay. We do it on forms all the time. Just translate you know, it. How many? Yeah. So not a big deal. I mean, we need a consent form. You translate it into Spanish or Urdu or, or Arabic or whatever other language and not a big deal. Right. Yeah. Well, we don't work that way. You know, and, and in fact, I always tell my students, because again, I, I teach a bilingual multicultural psychoed class. Not all of my students are bilingual. And so they're always worried, like, oh, my gosh, I'm not bilingual. Like, am I taking the class? Well, yeah, you're taking the class because it's mandatory. It's part of the program. But I rather have a person who is monolingual and understands all the things that we're talking about over a person who is bilingual and has no training in any of what we're talking about. Without specific kind of training, you don't know how it is. Because your experience is a case study, right? It's not applicable or generalizable to everybody else. So that's very interesting. So we just need to understand as supervisors, the basic concept behind a bilingual assessment, right? Correct. So what questions should I be asking my intern, for instance, who may be doing one? So again, like Brooke was mentioning earlier, right? What is the language dominant? So going back to the academic side of the house, right? If you're looking at an assessment for an SLD or something like that, right? Then you're looking at what, what is their language dominance? And that's when the Woodcock-Munoz language survey, or now the Woodcock-Johnson actually has on the oral language, it also has Spanish. That's when you're looking at what are we utilizing to, to assess that? And then once you assess that, you know, because again, disability occurs in your brain. It doesn't occur depending on what language you speak. Got it. So that's the biggest message, right? If you're disabled in English, you're also disabled in Spanish. You're not just disabled in English, right? So that's the biggest message that we want to send to anyone working with bilingual kids. It's like, if they have this disability manifesting in English, it should also be manifesting in Spanish or in whatever other language, which is why that interview and that the RIO of the riot is so important because that's where we start getting that information. Is there a historical time frame for this? Was this already happening in wherever country or whatever education there we're getting? Or is this something new that's happening because now they're immersed in English? Kind of like your kid ex- example, right? Never had an issue, but now all of a sudden, she's got to share things. You know, there's a problem. I don't like to share. You know what I mean? Yeah. So understanding all of that depth, I think, is important. So I always say that. I always tell, and, and students are like, what? So you don't, if I'm bilingual, I'm not, valid. I said, that's not what I mean. Like we can get all, all the trainers, you know, or supervisors trained on, 
These are the basics of a, a multicultural, we're going to change the name, right? We're not going to call it bilingual assessment, nope. whatever we're going to call it, right? A multicultural type of evaluation. This is, these are some of the pointers that you need to look into. Um, and that way you feel confident, right? You can click, yeah, I'm competent in this area, despite not being Spanish speaking. Right. Or you understand you know. the concepts. Exactly. Brooke, it looked like you're deep in thought. What's up? I wanted, I wanted Nancy to say that one more time. She moved past it, but I wanted her to, to kind of land there. Um, disability is where? In your brain. And so Brilliant. if I am disabled in one language. You're disabled in all languages. Okay. It's kind of, and I always use this example. You know, I've never been to China, but I would love to go. So if I were to go to China, I would be so disabled because I don't speak Chinese. Yeah. You don't understand right? the culture. You but, don't. Right. Language, language wise, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be I shouldn't say disabled. I wouldn't be functional because I don't understand the language. Right. But my English brain is just fine. So it's not necessarily that I have a disability. It's just all of a sudden the, the rules change, the cards change, everything changed for me. Right. So so now I, I need to I need to look at things a little bit differently. So that's one of, you know, that's one of the biggest questions that we, any, anybody, Dr. Ochoa, Dr. Ortiz, Dr. Rose, any of the, anybody who's involved in training on, in these areas, you know, uh, Dr. Crisel Alvarado, may she rest in peace. She passed away a couple of years ago, right? Big proponent of working with kids in these areas and understanding that we only have one brain. And if it's disabled in one language, it's disabled in all of them, right? Not just in English. So I, I know we're going to transition here to a different topic, but it this really has me, I think we're going to need to schedule another episode, Dr. Razzo, because I now I'm thinking, okay, how do I explain this with teachers? How do I consult with teachers on this? And as somebody who is wanting to move into a more culturally responsive or culturally competent, culturally sensitive um, practice, what steps would you recommend that that we take? What What's what would be step number one if I'm really trying to to increase my own cultural competence uh, in this area? And so again, it's, it goes back to the same conversation because I can't answer it in like two seconds, right? I mean, it goes back to getting to know your families, who you're working with, you know, uh, building that trust so they feel comfortable with you and letting you know what's been going on with this kid or what's been happening or what are their struggles you know, with the child or, or there haven't been all of a sudden now we're in this new place, you know, um, where all of this is, is being asked of me, you know, and, and perfect example on that Brooke. I mean, uh, the Valley is very, even San Antonio, very different from Lubbock where you're in, you know, and, and some of us may go into some culture shock when we go that way, or when you come this way, you know, so just understanding like where all of that is, where they're coming from, I think is important and, and not jumping the gun right away and saying, Hey, it's, it's, they got to have special ed. We have to refer them. But again, not to say that if you are seeing things that need attention, that you're not paying attention to them. You know what I mean? It's kind of like when we say, oh, we're, we don't want to refer anybody for SLD until they're past kinder or first grade or whatever. You know, we don't want to do those little ones. Well, are there kids that little that may have a learning disability? Well, yeah, but they're few and far between, right? The numbers, um, you know, they still have to have their language dominance, even if they're monolingual English. We're not going to start testing them for, you know, for um, IQ and achievement stuff because we know that that's not stable at that age, right? It's the same kind of concept with anybody who's who has a different language language is language 
as you're saying that, and as you're talking about it, another part culturally and linguistically diverse, like culturally doesn't always have to be a student who is linguistically diverse. Correct. Right. Like there was a student, I didn't do the assessment of somebody else who was in my cohort uh, years ago when we were internship, they were assessing a student who was recently adopted, but the child wouldn't speak to anybody, wouldn't talk, would just request and that's it. Well, we find out the child was removed from a home where there was drugs being made. So he was mm-hmm. taught not to say anything to anybody because they didn't know, they didn't want anybody coming back, but that's, that's culturally diverse. That's different. Absolutely. And that's, Absolutely. you wouldn't understand that until they delve deep into it and they ended up getting home with the calling the foster parents and all that type of stuff to figure out what was going on. You just, yeah. And that's a something. whole nother, that's a whole, that's a whole nother, nother episode, podcast. Episode. <laughs> yeah. Dealing with foster kids, you know, yeah. because I've dealt with on the private practice side, when I worked in private practice, every foster kid has to have an evaluation annually. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So when we're doing our evaluation in schools, why aren't we asking for those? Oh, or why aren't we getting them? I, you know what I mean? And it's so background heavy. The ones I get, at least there's like pages of background. I'm like, this is phenomenal. Thank you exactly. so much for getting this information for me already. <laughs> Especially well, when it's I'm done glad recently. you got it because yeah. usually we don't. Oh, so, <laughs> yes. We, we do want to talk a little bit about Summer Institute and kind of talk about what we're, we have in store this year. But is there anything else you kind of want to end on, Nancy? I know this is a huge, this is a lot bigger topic than 45 minutes. And we'll Absolutely. probably have to have you on to just continue the conversation, but anything you want to leave people with today besides talk to the parents and get background information? I I think the comment about, you know, if we're disabled in one language, we have to be disabled. It's one, we only have one brain. We don't partition our brain. We're not split brain patients or anything like that. Right. Um, So keeping in mind that there's so much more to a child than what we see, Um, you know, so we have to spend that time to get to know the families. Um, and the child themselves, because many times, man, they're, they're a source of wealth. You know, they, God. they give us so much information once we build that trust. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Brooke, anything else you want to speak to on? I mean, there's a lot, but I'm glad we're having the conversations. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's yeah. the main part of it, right? Yeah. Just going back. I think this all started because somebody on a text thread asked something about bilingual certification and <laughs> We haven't now, even touched on that. Right. So. Now, now Nancy's a traveling trainer for the state of Texas. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nancy, you are not only an amazing practitioner and an educator and linguistically diverse assessor, but you are also the chairperson of the Summer Institute, correct? I am. I and am. And so tell us, so this year we're coming back in person. <laughs> Super excited about that because um, I, I always joke with Dr. Barbary, Stephanie Barbary, who um, appointed me to this position. You know, her arrangement with me was to have Summer Institute at the island. And the first two years, as you all know, we were not at the island. So I told her, I said, we have to come to the island. I, I usually say come back, but no, I, I have to correct myself and say come to the <laughs> island because we were never here, right? We were here virtually. And so I'm super excited. Um, to actually have our summer institute at South Padre Island and Port Isabel because our conference will be in Port Isabel, but, you know, just right across the causeway to the island. So we're very excited to, to have that. Our team has come together to put some great training involving, you know, a lot of mental health, a lot of culturally and linguistically diverse stuff. I, as keynote, we're having Janine Fitzgerald, who is actually a behaviorist, Right. I, I've known her through some of the trainings that I went through here at Region One for behavior. And so one of the things that I kept hearing throughout this whole year in conversations with practitioners is 
we need to rethink behavior. We're seeing different kinds of behaviors because of the pandemic, because of quarantine, because of online that we haven't seen before. And we know behavior is behavior is behavior, but how we approach behavior has to be different. So we are bringing in Janine Fitzgerald. She's going to be doing her keynote on transforming adversity into strength and talking about some of those things, right? Seeing kids a little bit differently, getting to know the kids, just like we've been talking about, so that maybe, you know, we we pivot what they're doing or what they're, how they're behaving and really understanding where it's coming from, right? So our theme for, for the Summer Institute is reconnecting, reintegrating, and rebuilding school supports for children's mental health. And Brooke, Chris was asking me about Summer Institute focusing on mental health always, right? And I said that that was that was a thing that TASP had done prior to me uh, because we know that you know at convention we we tend to be very assessment heavy a lot of the times because that's what we do and so we really wanted to make sure that the mental health side of what we do doesn't get taken to the back burner. Um, so we do try to make Summer Institute always focused on mental health. Is that, do you want to? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and this kind of arose out of, I, I guess, out of the push um, from NASP to one of the NASP strategic priorities is to promote uh, the comprehensive role of the school psychologist as a uh, mental and behavioral health provider. So I think in Texas, we tend to think, oh, when I'm working in mental and behavioral health land, I'm assessing for emotional disturbance or I'm conducting a functional behavior assessment. And the point of Summer Institute is to say, look, we're trained for more than that. Um, and this is more than just establishing eligibility. It's really being the expert in mental and behavioral health within our school districts and on our campuses. And so that's always our goal, right? Um, We're also having Janine talk about the other title that she has to her presentation is telling the story differently. So again, a lot of the things that we've been talking about, and then we are going to have her do a pre-recorded session called brains at risk. The alarm has sounded. So taking a little bit more of a neural kind of, of uh, aspect on, on that end, right. And her explanation of things. Um, we have our task school safety and crisis committee talking about, you know, preventing vicarious trauma and burnout because of everything that we've gone through these last two years. I felt that that was an important conversation to have. We also have Amber Harris with tales from the other side of the conference table, you know, so giving her side, not as an LSSP, but as a parent, right? Um, and so that I, I'm really excited for that one. And then we also have um, two women, amazing social workers from the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights, um, coming to talk to us about the journey that immigrant youth have, their mental health journey and how it impacts them when they do go to our schools. So I'm very excited. The Young Center is a national organization that is housed out, that is based out of our Harlingen office here. So um, that's going to be a really good one as well. And then on Friday, uh, we have half a day, right? Um, We have a focus on grief. Last year, if you all remember with our Summer Institute, we talked about crisis, we talked about trauma, but we didn't quite get into grief. And so we do have um, personnel from the Children's Bereavement Center, which we have down here in the Valley. I think you might have it up there in San Antonio too, Chris, I think. Yeah, we do. Um, So they're coming in to do several sessions on grief. 
And then we also have uh, Dr. Melissa Heath, who was here with us last year, um, doing a pre-recorded session on grief as well. Children's grief, lesson plans, stories, and activities. She's super good. She's an expert suicidologist, has done amazing stuff with um, research in these areas. So she's going to be doing that. Then I last month, I was at a conference and I learned about the National Hispanic and Latino Mental Health Treatment and Transfer Center. I know that's like this huge name. Big acronym. <laughs> yes, but it is a national center based out of Puerto Rico, which I wanna go visit one of these years, who is coming out and doing two sessions um, on considering culture and mental health treatment of Hispanic and Latino children and youth but also engaging and treating Hispanic and Latino children and adolescents in school mental health settings. So they are a, a, a resource that I don't know that many of us here in Texas are familiar with, but they're like a technical assistance center through SAMHSA, through okay. SAMHSA grants that are here for us, for mental health clinicians that are working with kids in schools, right? Um, and so I, I really, I'm super excited to have them here because I want to introduce them to the world, right? But for sure, our task community. Um, so we know that, hey, they're just a phone call away. They're just an email away They're They have a great website, great webinars, um, again, to support us in dealing with Hispanic and Latino children. And I love that it says Hispanic and Latino, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, it's not just dealing with Mexican heritage. It's dealing with Guatemalan heritage. Hondureño heritage, you know, things like that. And so I'm super excited to have discovered them. I was laughing with them the other day and I said, y'all must think I'm, I'm like a little loopy or something because I'm just so excited. I said, but I know yeah. the, the need is great. And I actually explained to them, you know, how this whole conversation of bilingual, uh, multicultural all kind of stuff was happening. And I said, which again, points to the fact that your resources are so needed. They have brochures. They're going to have a booth at our center. So people have a little bit more time to go talk to them. So we have a great lineup. Um, hopefully you all will take advantage of registering, coming out in your flip-flops and getting some sun, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, having some fun in the sun. We purposely made Friday a half a day only, and then you can go watch the pre-recorded sessions at your own time so that you can have some fun in the sun. Yeah. I know we're looking forward to it. Are you, is it going to be the same presenters that you saw at the conference from the yes. national Hispanic? Okay. Yes. So they have been vetted. They've been vetted. <laughs> All right. So just make, I'm just, I just want to check for us. Yes. <laughs> Our members need to know how passionate you are about this, Nancy. And I think yeah. they can, I think they can hear that you, uh, you put so much blood and sweat and tears into uh, planning this. And um, I just hope we have, you know, a couple hundred people down there uh, for you to to welcome and be hospitable to. Because I agree, uh, I, I, it's going to be a think, party. Yeah, I do think um, we need to we need to you know. I hope we have the numbers. I mean, that's going to show how we are very interested in this because again, it's not just something that you know affects us in the valley. It's the immigrant issues are all over the the world. You know, um, like Brooke started the conversation with talking about refugees and things like that. You know, it's important for us to know these issues are happening to our kids. And I am very passionate about helping kids, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I remember myself as a kid, you know, in my history. And if I did not have people helping me, I wouldn't be where I am today, you know? And so I feel like in our positions as school psychologists, as advocates for children and families, the more knowledge we have, the better we are going to be at what we do. What a great way to end it. <laughs>
Nancy. <laughs> I don't even say you. anything else. Also, I'm so excited because this will be your first in-person conference yes. for your summer institute, correct? <laughs> yes, I'm already shopping for spring dresses or spring <laughs> clothes, you know, because I have to, you know, get fully dressed, not just from the waist up, like for virtual, you know. Um, so I'm kidding about that. But yeah, I, I am very much looking forward to it. I've been out to the facilities several times had to try the food that we're going to put on our lunch check it out right nancy you know so (laughs) super excited i i I do think and hope that people come and i and i did mean you know what what we what we wrote out in our um, announcement like come have some some rest and relaxation like i think we all need that so take advantage of learning some things um hopefully a lot of new things you know and then and then after that you can not wear a tie because ties are not allowed in the valley at SPI, South Padre Island. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Nancy, I know I look back at our old notes and we did do rapid naming, rapid questions. So I've grafted Uh up a new bunch of them that I didn't put on the show notes. So you didn't get to see them beforehand. So they're brand new ones. I'm going to go at them with you. Okay. You ready? Sure. (laughs) Favorite day of the week. Ooh, definitely not Monday. Um, probably Thursday. Okay. Fair enough. enough. (laughs) What is your biggest like physical fear? Deep water for me. Brooke isn't a fan of snakes. Yeah, I don't like snakes either. I yeah. mean, even just thinking of them is like, yeah, no. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, right? Go to movie or TV show when you need to pick me up. Okay, so I, I wouldn't be a, a Notre Dame person if I didn't say the movie Rudy. Good choice. Good you know, choice. I gotta say, I gotta say the movie Rudy. Way to keep points in your favor. Was, was Rudy <laughs> offsides? Of course. Was he offsides? <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say I have the DVD and I had the VCR tape. So Chris can really think that I'm old. <laughs> what was your first job job? Paycheck job? Actually, my first paycheck job was working for the Border Patrol. <laughs> your your route to becoming what you are is very unique. I worked in the accounting office, okay? So it wasn't, you know, okay. one of the things I joke about is I always used to have lunch outside, you know, and go watch the canines because I couldn't really play with the dogs, right? Because you're not supposed to play with canines, right? But I'd go kind of watch them outside while I'd have lunch. So yeah, Border Patrol. All right. When you were young, young, what did you want to be? Um, I wanted to be a teacher. Okay. Well, not like a college teacher, like a teacher teacher. So not what I'd you actually all, do. <laughs> I'd sit all my little stuffed animals and teach them. And, you know, my That's mom still jokes about it to this day. <laughs> um, biggest pet peeve? People who don't answer emails. Oh, that is my biggest me? pet peeve. <laughs> <laughs> people who, you know, I mean, and, and again, talk about it being a cultural thing. Many, mm-hmm. many people in different cultures won't answer you if the answer is no. They yeah. just won't answer the email. Yeah. But that's one of my biggest pet peeves. Yeah. So normally I'm a call you person, not recently. Um, but like, I remember like last year, Nancy, I'm like, I just need to call you. Cause I have like three questions and I'm not just going to text you. I just need all three answers right now, but I do it to Brooke too. Right. Brooke, I'll just call you and ask you one question. I, and then- I'm a, I'm a pick up the phone kind of person. I've had many conversations with Brooks that last less than 45 seconds because it's just easier to call and ask him it real quick. And then I'll be like, all right, later. I agree. Brooke has had a question that we want to vet everybody for. We're collecting mm. data on this question. Um, so is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? <laughs> I think so. Philosophically, you know, it's just wrong. <laughs> All right. How so you, dare you? I won't say because of the order these episodes are released, but other people have said the same exact thing, that there is a moral and, eth- and philosophical reason why you shouldn't eat them if you're a vegetarian. 
Interesting. Interesting. I'll, I'll be I'll be interested in the article write up for that. Book. Oh yes, yes. Brooks on top. Oh, of it. Okay. <laughs> dissertation. It's going to go in the summer newsletter. Uh, there you go. Summer. I'll I'll get a. Uh, we'll get create Mr. a special issue in our task uh, there journal. We go. Yeah. We'll convince well, uh, Jeremy. Well, Nancy, I feel like we really just kind of scratched the surface on this whole conversation. So we're going to have you on. It's just easier that way because we'll just let you talk instead of listen to us do just talk. Um, but we want to thank you again for our annual visit that you give us that will just awesome. happen Thank as long as me. as long as you enjoy Brooks and I's company because we're not going to not enjoy yours so always always <laughs> I, I told y'all I'm a big fan so good for Nancy and Brooke I'm Chris uh, make sure you follow us and look us up on all of your social media channels I'm going to see everybody at Summer Institute because it's going to be phenomenal and fun um, and make sure you follow us on Instagram at TXASP and on Facebook and until next time make good choices <laughs> <laughs>